Welcome to the Legal One podcast brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we're thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is approximately 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get important information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing crucial legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other important stakeholders to positively address the issues in question and know how to get a greater level of understanding of those issues. So let's get started, and thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to the Legal One podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing issues of violent extremism in our public schools, identification, prevention, and response. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of the Legal One program, and I'm really excited to have with me today Jeff Gale. Jeff is the director of the Office of School Preparedness and Emergency Planning with the New Jersey Department of Education, and Jeff has been a wonderful partner with us at Legal One and at NJPSA and FEA on a wide range of issues related to school safety and security. So Jeff, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the partnership as always. Jeff, as we're beginning this presentation, perhaps you can let our listeners know, you know, just a brief overview of the scope of your job. You've got a big job at the department, but just uh, so that people understand the office that you run. So my office is situated within the Division of Field Services in the department. And our job in a nutshell, and really reinforced pursuant to the establishment, the the legislation that established these New Jersey School Safety Specialist Academy. Our work is directed entirely at assisting schools in preventing, preparing for, mitigating, responding to, and recovering from different types of violence in schools. And that comes in the form of proactive measures such as behavioral threat assessment, team training and development, assisting schools with their physical security features, discussing with them their access control policies, their visitor policies, assisting them in conducting and evaluating drills, such as those for active shooter, for bomb threats, for evacuations, for non-fire events, and things of that nature that are also a matter of requirement per law in the state of New Jersey. We assist schools in establishing their plans commensurate with code that mandates that schools have school safety practices in place with a minimum 91 required elements incorporated into those school safety and security plans and assisting them in obtaining training and guidance on things such as recovery from an event that would be reunification conceivably or reverse evacuations and so forth. So We are placed as the lead visionary on those subjects relating to school safety and security statewide, and we are the lead training agency in order to kind of give a mouth to the funnel so that schools aren't searching in a million directions, hearing 10 different messages and not knowing exactly what to adopt. It's our job to sort those things out and to make sure that we get the training out to the schools. The School Safety Specialist Academy For anyone who's not aware, every district in the state has to have a specialist that's been given four days of training from my team through my office and keeps that training up to date with 10 hours of annual training ongoing year to year to retain that credential. 
And so we train them on event security, how to conduct drills, how front office staff should be controlling the front door and the visitor portion of your school day, how to conduct evacuations, all the things that we just talked about. We train schools extensively on the conduct of those things. And the specialists then have the ability to go back with their training and assist their districts in doing that as well. And, you know, I, I know that the amount of work you do is incredible, the scope of it. You are in contact with every district in the state of New Jersey at various points in time. Many people might think you have a huge staff, but I know you are doing incredible work with a very streamlined staff. So um, it's really amazing the reach that you have across the state of New Jersey. I appreciate that. I think we are probably for many, many schools, the face of the department because of the proactive work we do and how much time we spend in the field. Our time is spent almost entirely engaged in the field on all the activities that I just described. We have, for example, over, we took a cessation, there was a brief cessation during COVID in our drilling observations, but between 2015 and up to this date, absent the COVID shutdown period and the ensuing year, when we came back into schools, we've observed at least 1,800 active shooter drills and provided feedback during COVID. We set in place the process for schools to set up safe food delivery sites and to manage those sites effectively in an attempt to mitigate spread of COVID. And after we set that in place, we visited approximately 1,500 distribution sites to gauge the activities that were going on and to determine best practices and things that were working and were not working and translated that into online training, which I think reached about 15,000 in the school field on just that topic alone. And and you can continue to magnify that. I I personally have trained at least 35,000 people face-to-face and another 30,000 online. And that's just me. My team is comprised of Dr. Tom Gambino, Robert Sensi, James McDavid, Luke Camerata and Karen Corella. So I've got five on my team. Karen handles the bulk of all of the things that make an office float and keep people engaged with all the hard work. And the rest of us are out there multiplying that training that I just gave you by another four at least. So it's a lot of work. I have a very dedicated team. They're very self-driven and capable of self-direction. And we all understand how important this work is. And we enjoy what we do, not the reason behind it, but we enjoy the interactions and, and we make ourselves available. I don't know how many hours we work. I know we're paid for 35. But right. <laughs> I worked yesterday at no cost, at no pay. So, so I do have to say, um, you know, while you're doing so much mandatory training, you're also going above and beyond that in so many ways and being proactive. So, you know, what we want to talk about today is an issue where it's critical for school districts to be proactive, understanding what we mean by violent extremism, the root causes of it, how it can impact students and adults in our school setting. So a couple of basic legal principles I want to identify as we start this conversation. Of course, every student and staff member in our schools has constitutionally protected First Amendment rights to express their views on issues. And that means that sometimes people are going to express views that others disagree with. A hallmark of our democratic society is that people are allowed to have different political views on a wide range of issues, as we know we do, and to share those views with others, even when we might be aware others have strongly held different views. So, of course, that is protected. It's one of the most important areas of speech that is protected, but it's not unlimited. 
there are limitations and responsible parameters that we're all supposed to work within. So, for example, any speech that is construed as threatening to others would not be protected under the First Amendment. And we have to recognize that speech that crosses that barrier into threatening speech is not permissible for students or adults in the school setting. Threatening speech is not the only limitation. Lewd or vulgar speech also is limited and does not have that same First Amendment protection. If students engage in speech that constitutes harassment, intimidation, or bullying, that would not be protected by the First Amendment. We know that some forms of expression could be so serious that we need to involve law enforcement. If you see a social media post, for example, that constitutes a credible threat against students or staff or, or others, and school officials see that, we now have a legal obligation to share that with law enforcement. We know that sometimes there's a legal obligation for us to assess student mental health and wellness and whether a student could pose an imminent danger to self or others, and sometimes assess suicidal ideation depending on what students are saying or, or doing. So there have always been limitations on a student speech. It's not an unlimited right. It has to be exercised responsibly. So with that basic background, and of course, an understanding that New Jersey has put in place, as you mentioned, some very specific requirements related to school security that we have built on in recent years. So for example, now there must be a threat assessment team in place starting with the 2023-24 school year in each of our schools in the district. So we have lots of systems that are in place. Having said all that, can you try to help our listeners understand the concept of violent extremism and why we should be concerned about it in our public schools? Sure. And, and I'll jump back just a, a couple feet for a couple seconds. You mentioned being proactive, and that's really part of what our job has been all along. We have always done our best in my office, on my team, to make sure that we're thinking ahead, that we see the speed bumps before your teams out there in the field run into them head on. And one of those opportunities that we saw seized upon going back several years was the concept of school-based behavioral threat assessment teams how those teams should be constructed, and what an accurate assessment should look like, how it should be conducted, and so forth. And that was before the legislation was ever even proposed. We were already doing this work to try to make sure we equipped schools with that capability and that knowledge. This falls into that type of activity and behavior that, when recognized, should be assessed. And to your point, yes, we have the ability to speak freely in many regards, but as we all know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? So there is a limit. And regardless of whether someone is exercising and expressing themselves with regard to the right to free speech, what we do have to realize is that what people say can be indicative of potential threats, even if it's not an outright threat to themselves or to others. So recognizing that dynamic and sitting down and trying to get to the bottom of what's driving that behavior and whether it represents an actual danger is what threat assessment is designed to do. And the type of activity that we see with the radicalization of our youth towards the concepts of domestic violent extremism is one of the things that when seen should be recognized and should be dealt with does not mean that anybody who's engaged in the ideology behind the thought process that leads them to the potential for violence, they're, they're entitled to that. But it's, it's mobilizing toward that violence and inciting others that becomes problematic. And that's what we should be aware of and should be watching for. So with regard to that, 
And with regard to that topic, subsequent to the Capitol attack on January 6th, the federal government through the National Counterterrorism Center, the Department of Justice, and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security issued a joint intelligence bulletin warning that that breach represented a potential significant driver of violence for armed militia groups and racial extremists near term. That concept of racial extremism, and also ideologically based on, for example, anti-Semitism driven towards the eradication of groups associated with that opposing viewpoint, is something that we started to see manifest in school security and incident reports coming from our schools back in 2016. If you recall, prior to that, we were all talking about Islamic violent extremism, right? The, the concept of ISIS and ISIL and what was going on in the Middle East and the concern for lone wolf radicals here in the United States. And in 2016, we started to see a pivot towards white extremism, towards anti-Semitism, and we started trying to develop some awareness and some protocols and processes for schools to recognize and deal with those trends as they began to manifest in schools. So what we're talking about, and usually it's, we're going to kind of couch it in right-wing and left-wing extremism, not with regard to political Democratic or Republican parties per se, but toward the concept that right-wing extremism is typically a reference to the use of threat of violence by non-state actors, okay? So we're not talking about anything that is coming from our government in any form, and whose goals might include racial or ethnic supremacy, opposition to government authority, anger at women. If you're familiar with the incel movement, the, the involuntary celibates and their anger towards women, outrage against policies such as abortion, those are all examples of right-wing, what's termed right-wing extremism. Left-wing extremism is a term that's generally used to indicate the threat of violence by those same non-state entities in opposition to capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, environmental or animal right issues, or to decentralize social and political systems that mobilization towards a form of anarchism. So you can kind of divide it into those two major categories, and then we can figure out in what we see and in what someone is aligning their ideals with you know, which of those two extremisms they're, they're mobilizing towards, or at least ideating towards or becoming involved in. And so anybody who is out there attaching themselves to one of those belief systems and believes that they are going to mobilize towards violence in support of that cause is really what we're talking about with regard to the violent extremism that, that we're discussing today. So I wonder what impact the global pandemic may have had on these really disturbing movements. We have had so many individuals who for extended periods of time really didn't have the same level of person-to-person -person social interaction and relied so much on electronic communication, social media. Can you talk about the impact of COVID and the aftermath of working through the pandemic? Yeah, so that's a, a very important point to, to cover because one of the things that we know about adolescents and, and we're talking about this in the school realm. You know, obviously adults are radicalized and we see that all over the media and all over the news. But with regard to students, one of the things that we have to always bear in mind, and especially in light of a topic like this, is the fact that students, adolescents, the, the kids that you're teaching every day in the form of students are looking for, they're seeking three things in their development. They are seeking a sense of identity, they are seeking connectivity, and they are seeking purpose in their life, okay? Th those things we have to keep in mind, those are three drivers of all types of behaviors for adolescents, is the pursuit of one or more of those three things. 
So when we look at the concept of radicalization and in terms of what the COVID-19 pandemic did, most of us were forced to remain at home for a prolonged period of time. The impact that that has on a kid is I can't be with my friends, right? I talk about this frequently in, in other presentations I give, but when I was in high school, algebra was not the thing I couldn't wait to get to school to deal with, right? I wanted to go see my friends. I wanted the after-school sports. I wanted the socialization. Those were the things that were important to me. Those were all lost to our students who were learning from home. So they're isolated, they're disconnected. I just talked about connectivity. I talked about identity. It's very hard to gain an identity when you're not physically interacting with people. So some of those things are compromised right out of the gate. You know, the threat that online radicalization presents in that environment becomes increased because we're doing more and more of what? More and more engagement online. That only gave our kids an opportunity to spend more time online. And so how hard is it to start to recruit and to start to groom and to start to foster those types of thoughts in a young adult who's seeking those things that we just talked about when there's no oversight because the parents aren't sitting at the computer with the student or the child or the adolescent and don't really have an opportunity in that vacuum to see how that vacuum is being filled, right? So now we've got a bunch of kids in simple terms, sitting home, away from their friends, online, subjected to whatever their mind drives them towards as far as what they're researching and pursuing on the internet. And so now we've got this huge opportunity for that relationship that's being built, unknown to any adult in that student's life. While they're pursuing, and again, we'll go back now to sense of purpose, what else does radicalization towards a cause do but give you a sense of purpose that you now pursue and, and feel you need to support in some way, right? So the pandemic played a huge role in that regard. And as a result, what we know is the people that are at risk or at an increased risk for radicalization are people who are isolated, lonely, or wanting to belong, unhappy about themselves or what other people might think about them, embarrassed or feeling judged about their culture, their gender, their religion, or their race, which we saw play out in the media among adults battling back and forth over those topics for the last several years and trying to figure out where they fall in that equation, being fed up with being bullied or treated badly. And we saw an awful lot of online HIV incidents taking place because of the fact that people feel not only isolated, but by virtue of the type of isolation, anonymous to a great degree. So I'm not responsible for the impact of anything that I do because I, I feel like I'm potentially anonymous to those on the other end, angry at other people or the government, confused about the, what they're doing, feeling pressured to stand up for others. All of these things are occurring, not in an environment that's being guided by a group of adults for an entire school day, but in the absence for the most part of most adults in that child's life, that adolescent's life. And so now they're kind of left to deal with these things on their own. And so it gave an opportunity for people to fill that space that had their own agendas to try to bring people in line with their thought processes and what they were opposed for or feel like they were representing and do their recruiting in that vacuum. So what do you say to parents who might respond that this may be an issue for other kids, but I raised my child right. My child would always come to me if they were struggling with issues. So sure, this might be an issue of concern for others, but it would never be an issue of concern in our home. Well, I mean, I think we all kind of recognize that anybody that believes that as a parent is really operating from a position of weakness, not strength in building that relationship. 
we know that kids are susceptible to the concepts of groupthink, to being led down the wrong path by people who are intentionally misleading us for their own benefit. We all recognize that, I think, as adults. The thought that a parent would believe, not my kid, we've all run into that dynamic, right? We, we all have seen that happen. My question to those parents would be, is that good enough for you to have that belief? Or do you feel that it, this is an important enough topic and your child's development is important enough that you want to see who else besides you is influencing their growth? Many of those same parents would say there are certain kids I would not allow my child to hang out with because I want to make sure that my kid stays the kind of kid that I believe they are now and, and forever will be. Well, if you're not going to monitor these behaviors and you're not going to look into what's going on in your absence, especially online, then you're letting them play with those kids anyway. You're exposing them to that type of influence anyway, and you just don't know it. Right. So while we control who our kids play with and who the play dates are set up with and where we let them go and what we let them do to try to help them grow and grow in a healthy and safe way, we're avoiding all of that if we're going to ignore the potential for this type of radicalization online and in other forums. Online is not the only way that this takes place, but it is a very simple way to insinuate yourself into the thought process of a young, growing adult and start to influence them with misinformation. I know that there are many predators out there who may, for example, pose as teenagers and figure out ways that they could prey on individuals online. Can you talk a little bit about that concern? Yeah, and we've always known this. You know, I, I think you take that same parent and you explain to them the risk for being groomed by someone who is preying on children as a sexual predator, right? And Parents are aware of that and they'll do what they can to guard against it because the dynamic that you just explained, we know happens all the time. Someone posing to be of similar age to the adolescent they're preying on, make themselves seem like they are a peer of that individual, right? We know how much influence our peers have on us. At the same time, we know that. We also know that there are people who don't necessarily pose as being in the same age group, but use the influence of greater age to express some experience and some knowledge that is being sought after by that adolescent, right? So it's really just a simple translation of what the agenda of that person is that is trying to draw somebody into, into their web, right? I have my belief system and, and we'll just go with white supremacy and I'm part of a white militia group and I'm looking to recruit. And so what I do is I start to discuss a cause or something that's in the media that's being discussed. And once you start to generate the conversation, you start to manipulate the mind to believe that what you are supporting is the right side of that argument. And you use misinformation and you use deceit and you use anything you can to influence that person over to your side. And that's really where a lot of the danger comes in this. When that happens in an environment where there's no oversight, where there are no balancing opinions, we run into the increased likelihood that that individual is going to be influenced in the wrong direction. And that's one of the things that I think is, I was so impressed. There was a press announcement on January 4th, the Philadelphia Inquirer was the first article that I read indicating that Governor Murphy had signed a law making New Jersey the first state in the country to require media literacy for K to 12 students. I'm not sure how this is gonna roll out or exactly when, but 
The measure is intended to help students bombarded with information from social media and news outlets to learn how to discern whether sources are credible. That's a paraphrase from the article. Media literacy will be required at every grade level. And essentially what this is intended to do is to educate students on where to seek out and how to vet information that's being provided to them to determine its accuracy. And I don't think there's anything more important we can do for our kids right now than to teach them that just because you saw something on social media or because you read it on the internet, it's now fact and it's something that you should align your belief system for or against. And so I think that this curriculum when it comes out and and this process has the ability to really help our children to mature when it comes to what they decide that they are going to listen to and what they're going to believe that's being spread by people that proposed to be coming from a news outlet that really, in many cases, we're finding more and more or nothing more than propaganda outlets for particular belief systems. So being able to use critical thinking skills and learning the difference between fact and opinion, these are all parts of this program. And these are the types of things that a well-equipped student would be able to use to try to determine whether what they're being proposed in alignment with some radical belief system is even something that's true and accurate. And so I I have great hope that that might help us as educators and as parents in vetting out this type of information and sorting out these issues. I would imagine that it's really critical for schools to partner with parents as well when it comes to, you know, working together to help students vet information that they're going to receive. You know, if you're receiving one set of guidance while you're in school, but we're not getting consistent reinforcement of that same message at home, that could be really confusing for students. So I I would, can you talk about the importance of schools and parents working together to help students, you know, assess information? Yeah. I mean, we all know the importance of, of a trusted adult, especially in the form of a parent and what influence that individual has over the growth of their child. Right. And I think that it is, Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but for many parents, this might be a lesson learned. I see too many adults that don't bother to seek out the source of the information that aligns with the belief that they started to hold, right? So my hope would be that maybe students and parents in some cases can grow together on this topic and learn to understand with the help of the school and the curriculum that just because you saw it on a computer screen somewhere does not make it fact. Just because it was broadcast and debated on a television show does not mean that what you're getting is accurate information. And and we all need to learn to work together to get to the source of those things because some of the tactics that are used by people who are attempting to radicalize others and especially the vulnerable youth running around today in our schools, those tactics are to create content that merge the cause that is held by the radicalized adult, let's just say in this equation, and to merge it with other popular issues like defending the rights of the military, right? It sounds, it sounds innocuous. It sounds like a good thing. But then, then the method becomes taking advantage of that and other major news events and twisting the story to create a culture that seeks to legitimize the arguments that I'm making to pull you into my web, right? So we take the situation that somebody can align with, and then we twist the facts to draw them into that debate or that argument attracting uncritical young people by presenting simple solutions to very complex problems is really what is going on with that. And so, you know, parents helping their students, their child to recognize those things, our students and their children to recognize these things and maybe learning on their own that just because I heard XYZ news outlet 
you know, continue to beat this subject from one side and the ABC outlet beat it from the other, that, you know, what do I do to find the facts and get to the heart of the truth of this debate and make an opinion that's not emotional and aligned with some very simple jargon that's being thrown out at me that draws me to one side or to the other. So you, you raise such great points. Of course, our time here is short, uh, given what we're trying to achieve in this podcast. One of the issues I want to mention as we wrap up is that we can't simply avoid controversial issues. I do hear this sometimes. Well, why don't we simply tell students not to go on social media? When I uh, first started working with school districts, I used to say, just avoid social media. And I very quickly realized that nobody would listen to that advice. So I think we have to accept the world that we're in and the need for adults and students to feel connected. We are going to be involved in social media. You know, and I've heard sometimes from the point of view of school officials, why don't we simply avoid controversial topics? Well, if we're trying to teach students to become responsible citizens, we're going to deal with difficult issues as adults, and we have to learn how to have responsible conversations. So, Jeff, I would imagine you would agree that the solution to addressing these issues can't simply be that we're never going to address difficult issues that could be considered controversial. No, I think it's irresponsible for us to collectively put our heads in the sand and wait until somebody's 21 years old to start debating these things for themselves. I think we have all learned Hopefully we've all learned that our kids are probably smarter than we are. I know my girls were brighter on the moment of birth than I was standing there holding them as their father for the first time. And these kids, they're seeing more of it more likely than we are as adults. They are online. This is their world. Their world is a world of information coming from the web and coming from media sources. And they see these things and they have questions and they're going to manifest themselves in classrooms and on sports fields and in after school activities. And I mean, how many times do you just put your hand up as an educator and say, sorry, you need to stop talking. You know, there goes your free speech. You're not even allowed to express what you're trying to ask a question about of a trusted adult in your life. So there are lines that we don't wanna cross when it comes to those types of things. But I think as educators, we can't ignore these topics and we should be directing. And hopefully this new curriculum can help us direct students to start seeking their own answers from legitimate sources that we can discuss you know, with them under the, in the right circumstances and under the right context. And we also know that not every child has a parent out there that's able to fill those gaps for them, not through any fault of their own. You know, not all households are created equally when it comes to that. And realistically, what we know is that there are individuals out there who are going to take something that seems innocuous, that plays, you know, plays your heartstrings, white supremacy issues, for example, one method of recruitment and something that only an adult can really help a student, a child, an adolescent understand is that let's not talk about whites being supreme to anyone. Let's take that conversation and let's twist it into a conversation about the social interests of the white race and where those are being in the minds of extremists, where those are being infringed upon, where they're being suppressed. And once you've attached to the belief and once you believe that those things are true, now it becomes more and more acceptable in the mind of that individual to migrate towards that extreme position. I happen to identify, I'm a white male. These are the things that we're losing. These are the things that are being infringed upon. There's the group of people that are taking from us. And now you can see slowly, I start to migrate to that other point of view saying, I need to stand up for myself. It's not even a matter of white nationalism at this point, right? It's more a matter of, hey, I need to stand up for myself. And so, you know, who better than a parent to help a child through that? But 
you know, we need to display those behaviors and have those conversations, I would believe, to some extent in our schools as they manifest themselves. Let's start talking about the fact that, you know, everyone has rights and be respectful of those rights to bring to bring our students back more to center on these topics. Those are great points that you're making. I do want to encourage our listeners to look for additional information because these are incredibly complex topics. So there is, for example, additional information on the New Jersey Department of Education website about the work of the Office of School Preparedness and Emergency Planning. Uh, There's also great information on the website from the New Jersey Social Studies Standards that have provided great guidance for how we can guide students and work through discussions on what can be politically charged topics, but doing it in a respectful, responsible way. So there is some great guidance. I know the National Counterterrorism Center has put out some very useful information about the issue of violent extremism. So on our website, we will be posting more information for those who would like to do a deeper dive into these very important topics. Jeff, I want to thank you for being such a wonderful partner and taking time to talk with us. I know you're doing so much work on this and a million other issues these days. So thanks so much for being with me. I appreciate, as I said before, the partnership and the engagement. And I think it's very important that we all learn to talk our way through these things and respect other people's opinions and and sides and to do our research to determine whether we're being sold the truth or a bill of goods. And I think it's important that our kids learn to do that and not just take something they saw on TikTok and automatically make it fact that needs to be acted upon because that can drive our youth to points of extremism. And if that outcome in support of that viewpoint becomes violence, then we all suffer for it, including that student or that adolescent. So I appreciate the conversation. I'm not an educator. And so I I understand how hard that job is. I know that there's always going to be a parent out there that doesn't like what's being spoken of in front of their children. And so, you know, we need to be careful how we handle this with our youth, but I do think it's important enough. And I think it's irresponsible if we do choose to just ignore these things and stick our head in the sand and say, I have my beliefs, you have yours, and let's just leave it at that. You know, these are growing individuals. And I think it's just really important for everybody to remember in viewing any particular adolescent the seeking of that individual, of their own identity, their own sense of purpose, and their connections to the world. If you see a failure or a challenge in a student achieving any of those three things, we should be looking as good people to help them with that problem, to help them with that chore or that task or that endeavor in an appropriate, safe fashion to the extent that our our authority and responsibilities allow us to do that. I think it's very, very critical to the growth of our youth to make sure that we provide some sense of oversight. And it becomes watching for these types of indicators. It becomes looking for the indicators that somebody is ideating and mobilizing towards violence, whether it be for an active shooter type scenario or whether it be in line with some type of radicalization or extremism. So thank you for your time. Thanks to all of you out there educating our kids for dealing with a a very, very tough environment these days. And good luck to all of you. And and my office is always here to support however we can. Thank you so much, Jeff. And thank you to our listeners. We encourage those who would like additional information to visit our website at www.njpsa.org slash legal one NJ. Be safe, be well, and we look forward to having you with us on future episodes of the Legal One podcast.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj. 